It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au, 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. G'day, my name is Anthony Daniel and today we're going to attempt something that's either foolhardy or arrogant depending on your point of view. We've decided to start interviewing each other. <laughs> Matt Grantham, thanks for joining us. How are you, Anthony? I'm very well, Different thanks. from this side of the desk. It is, it is. Um, we usually interview together, but today I'm going to be picking your brains. You are studying a, a Master's of Applied Finance, something that you're hoping will bring you into a, this amazing new world of clean tech and, and all of the investment um, and business opportunities there. What got you interested in that? Really, I've always been interested at, you know, with our work here on the radio show in, in clean tech breakthroughs and, and renewable energy uh, economics and so on. But it was really part of a Master's of Applied Finance. I, I did a particular a subject called Managing Shareholder Value. And I was very fortunate that my lecturer uh, decided to sort of, we, we got to pick a topic and, and I decided to study the, the demerger of E.ON, uh, which is the, the sort of European German utility. That uh, happened in 2016 and just looked at it from a sort of a corporate strategy level and what the lessons that might be learned are in terms of what might happen in other markets globally based on, on what happened there. Yeah, so you chose that as a case study and, and we'll be publishing a series of articles in Renew Economy and you're examining that that brown to green transition. That That's very interesting. You mentioned that demerger of, of E.ON into two separate entities. So it's E.ON and what's the other one called now? Uh, it's called Unipa. Unipa, okay. So can you explain a bit about what the organisation looks like before the demerger? Well, I mean, I can go back as far as sort of 2008 is when the sort of story really starts to take hold. You know, in 2008, uh, you had a European utility with a nice big footprint in distribution, generation, retail, good regular dividend policy, stable regulatory conditions, nice market cap of 90 billion euros and very happy shareholders. So yeah, okay. So they did all that. Yes. The whole gambit. Okay. So they did the, did the whole spectrum. And that is where this high point was, really. <laughs> and it was from that, that moment on, they, they were actually forced to spin off uh, some of their transmission assets in about 2008. Part of a deal with regulators, they wanted to sort of break the utilities up a bit to, to improve competition in, in the marketplace over there. And it was over that sort of eight-year period that resulted in the sort of demerger in 2016 that the two parts of, of E.ON you know, split apart. You had the, the Uniper, which had the sort of centralised fossil fuel assets, and E.ON was allowed to be cut loose and chase the distributed uh, renewable energy sort of customer-centric market. And it's important to you know, put a bit of context around it that this is not something that was particularly unique to, to E.ON. RWE, another one of the big European companies of a similar sort of profile, it also had you know, a significant loss of, of shareholder value. In E.ON's case, it was about 75 billion euros over yeah, right. that eight-year period. So, so that pressure was coming from, obviously, the, the distributed energy pressure, which, of course, it was Germany was quite on the vanguard of community energy, solar on roofs, um, trying to get local access. So it did sort of split up that, that cosy situation earlier of, of centralised energy and passive consumption. So 
one of the things you go on in, in, in the first article is talking about this concept of parenting advantage that would have been a big part of why the organisation was structured as it was uh, back then. So can you go into a bit of detail on what that concept is? Well, I'll go into parenting advantage in a minute, but the first thing the analysis I, I did as part of this research project for, for the university was really looking at what were the key drivers behind this because in that period there was certainly, as you alluded to there, quite a lot of regulatory pressure, changes to do with carbon regulation. There was also significantly in Europe, we can't also forget, that there was um, pressure to do with Fukushima and the closing of nuclear plants as well. So there's there was a lot of sort of regulatory pressure there, but the sort of analysis that I drew when I sort of went into a lot of detail about, you know, at a corporate strategy level, what forced this break up, it really was, as you alluded to there, Anthony, that breaking up of the centralised and distributed markets and the emergence of this distributed market and, and the acknowledgement that these utilities were now fundamentally in different markets. Okay, so... I'll expand on parenting advantage. Yeah, please do. So so parenting advantage basically is for people that aren't familiar with corporate finance concepts. It's the idea around the fact that you can have a whole range of assets owned by a utility, for example, wind farms, coal-fired generator, uh, hydro dams, etc., and that parenting advantage relies on the fact that they, as a result of their ownership, are the highest value owner of that asset. And they gain that through some diversity, through their low cost of capital, through their retail footprint and their vertical integration. And there's a lot of examples of that in the corporate world, things like, you know, in the US, you've got Walmart, in Australia, you've got West Farmers that own a number of different businesses, and they bring value to them through the ownership of those little business units or those little assets through being a good parent and being able to extract more, if you like, shareholder value from, from their ownership of that asset. Okay, so back then, that was obviously the right structure for a big energy giant. So if you can think about the centralised model, what advantage did, uh, did E.ON get from owning something right across the, the, you know, the spectrum of, of energy? Well, they, they gained a big advantage because you were operating in the one market. So you just had this centralised world. And it's as you've brought in more distribution, uh, you know, more distributed energy, and you know, which gets covered a lot on, on the BZE show, this idea that distributed energy is agile, you can dot it around the grid, the cost is all coming down. And it's that, as I said, that emergence of this new technology and this disruption, if you like, into this quite cumbersome, slow-moving industry. I, I mentioned in the article there's a thing called an Ashridge model, which looks at the potential for parenting advantage in a particular industry. And the thing that has changed is that in when you had everything in the centralised market, you sort of knew what you were doing. And there was a high degree, there was a high potential for parenting advantage. As these markets get pulled apart and that those forces multiplying them get pulled apart, as costs of solar come down, as battery storage comes down, as demand management comes down in price and becomes more economically viable, it comes down to those markets being pulled apart. And from a utility, corporate strategy, finance perspective, that potential for a parenting advantage is diminishing, you know, in terms of that corporate strategy. So do you see that, that Eon's experience at the strategic level has something to say to the other utilities out there that may be facing the same pressures? Well, a lot of the rationale that I went into in terms of the analysis I did on it was really looking at the Europeans are the canary in the coal mine for this stuff. And the forces magnifying these trends are going to multiply up over time and the reality is in Europe, there was a lot of loss of shareholder value. 
And I wanted to really look at, well, what are the lessons that we can learn in both Australia and North America to limit the risk of this loss of shareholder value as this transition slowly occurs? So we've spoken about that, and I think in the in the second article you go into a bit around um, capital allocation. So I guess it's a it's a related uh, situation where you've got one part of the business that is producing a, a lot of a lot of cash, and then the the, dis, the discussion then becomes well, how is that allocated a, across the system? So you refer to it as a bit of a curse. So how would a conglomerate like Eon consider capital allocation to become a, a curse in, in in their in their situation? Well, well, capital allocation and parenting advantage are really quite related concepts in a way, because if you think that you've got two different types of assets in two different markets, when you have cash flow uh, that these utilities were all happily spitting off in 2008, you've really got this problem of how do you allocate it? And you then also have other problems associated with, well, uh, what is your competitive advantage in these markets? Everything that I uncovered all came back to the fundamental question of at a utility level what is your corporate strategy which market are you in and you can't really answer the capital allocation question properly unless you have you know some of that stuff sort of uncovered but to put a little you know for the people that aren't sort of familiar with corporate finance concepts just a brief explanation of how capital allocation works is a company as i said might be spitting off a lot of uh, you know a lot of free cash flow and it has a choice effectively of allocating that cash flow to shareholders in the form of dividends or it can allocate it to these high growth renewables distributed opportunities or it can allocate them to these these lower growth centralised opportunities which are in decline. Mm-hmm. And the real problem that you have with this is that when you have all of these assets under the one corporate strategy at a management level, you are just tearing your hair out with internal conflicts. There is no way that you can efficiently allocate it uh, because you don't really have your end vision in mind. Yeah, you can't just split it down the middle. You can't just say, oh, whoever produces the cash gets to use it. You can't, you know, obviously shareholders are, are crying out for it as well. So, so that's right. And if you look at the sort of questions, and, and I only ever studied, um, you know, Eon from the outside, and, you know, I'm sure if we get people in the comments section down the bottom writing in German, you know, that's not how it was, Matt. It was different on the inside. And, uh, you know, you have certainly listen to what, what they have to say. But if you looking at it from a corporate strategy point of view, your ability to manage two different diverse asset bases um, in two different diverse markets uh, that require different sets of skills, you know, in one you've got, you know, a thermal engineer that's good at running a power plant and in your other, you've got an engineer that might be an expert in software management and battery technologies and they're completely different skills. Yes, and so they, they used to reinforce each other. They and don't anymore strategically. So why? Uh, not only do they not reinforce each other, they actively fight. Right. They actively fight. And the sorts of questions that you might be dealing with and that, that Eon would have been dealing with prior to the demerger are things like, where do I put my best managers? You know, my shareholders want a dividend, but if I give them one, I can't invest in these high growth distributed opportunities. 
And, you know, you've even got internal governance problems for, you know, groups like E.ON where you have the scenario and it, it gets touched on a lot in this sector, the idea that both of these sets of asset bases are kind of eating each other right. is that if you make an investment in a high growth renewables business, then you're devaluing the investment that you make in the centralized uh, system. So you're sitting there as the manager of this uh, of this asset. And, and as the manager, you're meant to be acting in the interests of both parties. Where do you allocate this capital? You can put it in these highest growth opportunities and devalue your other one, or you put it in one and, and, and devalue the, the, the high growth. Okay, Matt, you've seemed to have diagnosed the problem all right, but, but, <laughs> but, but, but what can other utilities learn from that experience? There's a lot they can learn from it. So if you're looking at what the insights are at a sort of a capital allocation level, the first thing to sort of really wrap your head around is that uh, investing in markets that are being disrupted is an extremely difficult exercise. I didn't mention this in, in the articles, but it's something that's worth bringing up here, and, and I'll go into a little bit of detail. I was going to write another article on this, but, but I didn't. This notion of what they call game theory. And game theory ties into this parenting advantage and also into the capital allocation concept. And basically what game theory is, is it's the idea that whatever investments or decisions that a utility might make does not occur in a vacuum. So when, for example, one utility decides to pull an asset out of a market, then that affects the wholesale price of energy, for example. When any carbon regulation comes in, how does that affect the competitiveness of your individual assets in those markets. And so without a clear picture on, uh, and this has been happening sort of globally now for a while, a really clear driver on carbon intensity and what that means, it really, really affects the ability for utilities to efficiently allocate that capital. And that's the thing that's changed. I mean, as I was writing the article, I had it come out at me that I didn't quite realise that in terms of dynamics on a market and the sort of managing of shareholder value, you had a really bizarre situation, which I can't recall anything else like this happening, where you had a lot of the conservative political forces globally are campaigning against any carbon pricing, which means that utilities just can't efficiently allocate their capital. The game theory is too complicated because you don't know where your assets sit on this position of competitive and, advantage. And, and don't know where they will in and two, you don't two know, years, five and you, years, and, years. And, and the problem with, with from the capital, which is why I brought this up in terms of the capital allocation, is that your investment you make at a utility level, you have to invest money over a four-year period to, in, or, you know, to get through planning, to build a new, whether it's coal-fired power station or wind farm, you then need cash flows for the next 25 years yeah. uh, in order to pay back that investment. And the market and the disruption, it is so uncertain that they're really not able to do that efficiently at the moment. No wonder they're asking for government handouts. You're, well, on, the, you're on the Beyond Zero show. Um, we're speaking to Matt Grantham, who is telling us all about, well, I mean, the broader theme of how the utilities can get from brown to green. We've spoken a bit about the challenges around uh, the, the historic parenting advantage, which doesn't perhaps exist anymore, and the challenges of capital allocation. They're all part of this larger theme of that brown to green transition. And there's clearly some companies that are, are going to be attempting that over the next, next five to 10 years as we see these distributed energy markets continue to accelerate with solar and battery prices dropping. What are the chances of anybody actually pulling this off gracefully? Are honestly not very high. Right. I mean, it, it, the, the market forces that are pulling these markets apart are only going to magnify. And 
there will be a lot of people that are very well intentioned that will set out on a course to to make this transition, but the forces that are pulling these markets apart combined with the regulatory inefficiencies and some of the other things will make this process extremely difficult and there will be some very intelligent sort of businessmen and women who will, you know, will destroy shareholder value over the next 10 to 15 years as they attempt this transition. It's a bit like watching figure skating at the Winter Olympics. You, you know that someone's going to hack it, slip well, over at some well, point. Well, there's, there's not billions of dollars at stake in figure skating, but in this there is. And, and the lessons that E.ON can teach us, are, you know, that the European experience can teach us really are that this market is being disrupted there will be quite often in finance concepts people sort of focus on this idea of creating shareholder value the real focus in this brown to green transition is actually going to be on minimizing the loss of shareholder value you know right. there there will be some losses here it's inevitable as assets cannibalize each other but the utilities that succeed at this are going to be the ones that are going to be able to best manage uh, the interest of their shareholders throughout this transition. Okay, so how do they do that? How do they de-risk? What are some strategies that they can... Um... Well, it, it ties into those concepts of you know capital allocation and, and, and parenting advantage. And, and there's a few things that, that happen in Europe that we can certainly learn from. And, and the first one is to sort of, you know, always, where possible, try and embrace the future. You will run into less problems if you bias towards low carbon and distributed markets because they are the ones that, that are growing. I think in the case of E.ON, they've spent a fair bit of time crossing their fingers that the German government, the Europeans might change their mind on some of the carbon regulation. And as a result, they, you know, they lost a lot of shareholder money just crossing their fingers and hoping that the regulatory conditions might mm. change. And that was quite value destroying for, for their sort of shareholders. But this is a question, I mean, the real, that is the real sort of crux of what I uncovered here. And I don't know that, that anyone's really got a good answer to that question. But being a good parent to your assets is going to be crucial. If utilities are not able to demonstrate that they are still the highest value owner of those assets as they go through this transition, then shareholders will look and say, well, let's break them up. And that's exactly what they did in Eon's case. Um, and as soon as they split the assets, despite all of the friction costs and the IPO costs and all of those things, the market capitalization of the combined value of Uniper and Eon was €2 billion Euros more than when it, it was almost as if uh, the market had applied a parenting discount right. yes, rather than an advantage yeah. uh, because they were such poor owners and managers of those assets under the current corporate strategy. But how would you see it, that, that structure being any different, Matt? Like if, once they've broken up, right, it's as almost as if Eon should have probably never gone down the road of, of the future at all. They should, probably should have just stayed, okay, you know, the, the the company that was at the Uniper, that is the old uh, f you know fossil fuel and, and centralized model, Eon could have just been that, couldn't have they? Why did they need to uh, go down this other strategy at all? Well, there was certainly some 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 regulatory pressure, and there's no doubt that over time, uh, some of these you know, companies will choose to become pure play centralized fossil fuel generators, and their if you like, competitive advantage will become working out where they're positioned in that market, that centralised market. And they could um, choose to be, for example, in the case of E.ON and Uniper, E.ON could choose to be of a niche, very customer-focused 
company that focuses just on those distributed solutions and is a high cost product in their distributed market and they could then leave Uniper to be a low cost competitor in the centralized market. And when you've got the two combined as part of one corporate strategy, it just doesn't work. Mm. But by separating them, you allow them to tailor their specific corporate strategies to their specific markets. And so uh, Uniper, what you're describing there is is basically what Uniper has become. It Mm. will be uh, something that will slowly get really good at, at, at not using too much capital. It will it will develop the expertise to manage its assets into decline and milk all of the value it can for shareholders as it slowly, you know, collapses away. Is there a, a correlation you can draw with any other industries? It could have been like I say a property manager maybe. You you own a few buildings, you're not planning to build anymore and you're just going to milk the cash cow and minimal maintenance or you know new developments. Oh um, look there's in in the technology world there's all sorts of uh, examples. I mean people can look at uh, examples like yellow pages, you know that has been disrupted by Google that they just kept milking it down as long as they could. But it was just a completely different corporate strategy to you know what Google was doing, uh, for example. That's, that's an example of, of, of a transition that's occurred. And, and there's many cases where disruption has occurred and, and people have been forced to manage assets into retirement. But the thing that I stumbled across was difficulty in, from a utility perspective, in terms of how do you do this in terms of optimizing the interest of your shareholders and by keeping your uh, balance sheets and your business units as separate as you can throughout this transition, uh, you maximise the optionality, if you like, of your shareholders as they undergo this transition. And if you are able to do that, uh, speak to the market, convince your shareholders and have a clear, transparent plan about how you can make this transition, then you're more likely to succeed. Right. Uh, and certainly uh, there's going to be, as you've identified there, Anthony, some pure play uh, competitors in your market. And if you can demonstrate that the bit of your company that's in the centralised fossil fuel bit and the bit of your company in the distributed bit are both outperforming in their respective sectors, then you've got a chance of convincing shareholders that they hold the most competitive assets in both uh, particular industries. Uh, so that's one of the ways to do that. And in the event then that there is the need to split these off and and separate them, it can look from a strategy point of view like this was all planned. Right. That, that that a CEO can stand up uh, in front of their shareholders and say, look, you know, here we are. We're going to keep these two revenue streams separate. We're going to keep them very transparent. We're going to make sure that the KPIs for this group are, are you know, specific to them and not to the total share price because it will be, you know, destructive, uh, you know, as the distributed markets uh, cannibalize the, the centralized markets. But that that's really the only ways that comparison with pure play uh, other companies in in those specific sectors. So it's almost like you know you're, you're seeing you're that set that separation, and you're saying okay, maybe the old centralized model will outperform the, the, their their competitors and, and make that transparent to the market. But that outperformance may still be decline. Um, and so at, <laughs> so at some point, I guess, the separation will come when it becomes clear to investors that, uh, that that's, that's permanent, right? That, that these centralized assets are not going to get any better and this distributed company needs to be, you know, go out there on its own and, and be unencumbered by the strategic albatross of its uh, centralized assets. So it's almost like 
managing that decline, but also managing, I guess, a, a split and then seeing that, that uh, centralised uh, organisation as something that is on the way out. But would in many ways will still be needed, though, man. I mean, we're talking I mean, investors. It can, it can when we're just talking about investors, we're talking about you know that there could be everyone's going to run for the exits and no one's going to invest in these companies anymore. But they're still going to have important work to do. And what do they do if their share price really, really plummets and they can't get access to capital? What what happens then? Well, that's a very broad question there. I mean, I think... Yeah, You've got, you got two minutes. I've got two no, minutes. No, 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 no you've got four. Four. That's right. good. Look, the, the issue around investors is, I think, out of all of this, one of the most interesting ones. Investors are going to want to tear these companies apart. Uh, there will be a natural internal... So, so there's always been a focus prior to now, and we're looking at you know, the fact that the technology as it gets faster and more agile and the markets diverge, that that will be what tears them apart. But I don't think there's been a lot of focus on the role that investors will play because while it might be fun to sit here and listen to two people talk about corporate strategy and how this transition can occur, investors really don't want to do that. What they want is the ability to allocate it themselves preferably. Right. So they will, do, they, will, they will want to tear these assets apart and they will want to allocate their capital because they can do it at an investor level. They can say, well, hey, I want an exposure of 75% to centralized uh, assets and I want 25 to distributed growth assets, with, which will have incidentally very different profiles. One mm. will look more like a technology company and the other will look more like a dividend yielding. Yep. Uh, and you'll, you'll end up with more specialized investors in both companies, in both, both groups. But uh, investors will have a key role to play here. If investors buy into this transition, and CEOs are able to convince them that they've got it under control and that they're in control of this process, then they may be allowed to continue up this brown to green transition. If they start to get it wrong, uh, investors will definitely want to pull these companies apart and will want to do it at the investor level. And because the, the advantage that gives an investor is you don't have to try and read the mind of what's happening in your CEO. When you're trying to allocate capital or manage assets, a CEO will look at it and, and you have to, as an investor, you have to get inside the mind of the CEO and understand a very complex corporate strategy about how they're going to do this transition. When you do it at an investor level, you just wake up in the morning and you know that the distributed company is getting up in the morning and they are 100% focused on their market and they've got a clear corporate strategy, clear capital allocation, clear parenting advantage. It fixes all of the problems. And so that gives them a competitive tailwind in their market and the same thing for the centralised market. It, it fixes all of these problems, which was the thing that underpinned you know, Eon's decision at yep. a strategy level. And it's interesting because, of course, the breakup of conglomerates in probably every other industry occurred a long time ago, you know, 20, 30 years ago, was when investors started saying that. They wanted companies that were focused. But I guess whatever the, the regulatory situation, the fact, the fact that centralised energy was the only way to produce energy for a mass market just meant that electrical utilities were different. I guess all that's happening now is it's being normalised or it's being transferred to this industry as well with the emergence of this technology. And investors want the same thing from their energy assets as well. Well, certainly, you know, an investor... Uh choice level, uh, investors will want that variety and they'll want a clear clear corporate strategy on where their money's being allocated. And uh, it will also, in some ways, I mean, one of the other key drivers that, that we're probably going to see at investor level here is that 
is a combined company like Eon, it's very difficult to go out to the market and raise capital when you've got this really confused, where, where is it going to get allocated? What are we doing here? Uh, whereas if you know, you've know you got a Tesla and they go out to the market, you know exactly where that money is going to go and exactly what the strategy is that underpins it. And, and that is going to be the thing that will uh, separate the people that make a good uh, brown to green transition and those that don't is the people that can communicate it to the market, bring shareholders along and be able to have their assets outperform in their respective markets as they make this transition. They're the ones that are going to be able to succeed in this area. So it's just the seven plates that you've got to keep spinning. That's right, seven. Okay, okay yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> Could be worse. All right, mate, thanks for joining us today. And uh, yeah, those articles are there on Renew Economy, so we'll have a link there on the on the podcast for those of, who are coming through through the podcast. So thanks for joining us today and all the best. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero show brought to you by the climate solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. To find out more about what we do, visit us at bze.org.au. My name is Anthony Daniel. We'll see you next time. It's not a product. It's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.